Okay, friends, so good morning again. And today, we're going to be continuing on our series on the book of Proverbs. And if you're just joining us for this series, let me just refresh our memories, right? That the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. And as we've discussed at some length in previous sermon, that wisdom is not only talking about some mental activity, not only about what you know, but biblical wisdom is actually more uh, of like a practical or applied knowledge. Maybe best thought of as something like skill or competence. In, in fact, if you look at Exodus 31, for example, skilled artists uh, like Bezalel, who worked on the Ark and Tabernacle, was said to have wisdom. And with the mastery of any skill, an inseparable part of that is our familiarity with the feeling of getting something right. Okay, so here's what I mean. So in the past six months or so, I've been regularly trying to play some sports again after a couple of years of not doing much due to COVID and other reasons. And a huge part of doing that is getting a feel for the game back again, right? Like what it feels like on my fingers and on, on my knees when I shoot a basketball properly. Or how it feels and sounds when I hit a tennis ball cleanly and with proper form, right? And so on. Now, I might end up missing the shots that feel good for a variety of reasons. And sometimes shots that are done poorly or awkwardly might, by some stroke of luck, end up going in, you know, besides a hockey. But I'll become a better player and I'll have a greater success in the long term if I can somehow replicate this feeling of doing it right consistently. Okay? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I use a sports analogy because that's what I'm familiar with. But I think I have a hunch that this is the case with much of the skills that we practice in life. So before we read the text, let me begin with a question that I think is pretty important for us to have some kind of answer to. What do you think it feels like to do or to have done the right thing in life? What can you expect to experience when you have taken the proper course of action and made the right decisions? Okay. I gotta be honest with you, I think that most of the time, we don't actually know. Most of the time, we're just focused on the results that we wanna get, not so much in the fact if we're doing it properly or not. Basically, we're just taking a swing at it and hoping for the best. For example, if the result that we want is material abundance and wealth, we just take the highest paying job. If the result that we want is love, we find the most attractive person. If the result that we want is comfort, we collect and consume as much as possible of the things that we think will comfort us. Just ex as examples, right? Not actually having concrete categories to discern whether or not this is the right career, relationship, or lifestyle for us. Only counting on the fact 
that it works out and hoping that we're going to find some kind of happiness and fulfillment when the results that we want do actually materialize. Now, I see at least that there are two problems to this approach. First of all, it seems to me that it's inevitable that there will always be this voice of doubt inside us that we have to silence, right? When we think that we can decide for ourselves what the right decision is, I don't see how we can stop this nagging suspicion that we could be wrong, that we're not good enough, that things might not even work out and all will be in vain. But also, secondly, when things do happen to work out, we might feel justified in what we have done, although it was wrong, and are encouraged to do it again and again, leading us to form these habits that although might get us what we want at the time, will eventually stop us or, or, or will eventually stop working or become a cause of much greater problems. Let me give you an example. I came across this story of a guy who normalized this habit of lying and covering things up as a way to get out of trouble. And his first memory of doing this is that as a kid, his dad has this gold watch and he was playing with it and he broke the watch, right? And when his dad asked him who did it, he didn't confess and basically he got out of trouble then. And he continued making those kinds of choices until as an adult, while he was driving, he hit a little kid and the kid unfortunately died. And instinctively, he fled the scene. It's a hit and run. But eventually, the cops eventually found him and he ended up going to prison for a lot of years of his life. And the point is that this choice to hit and run didn't come out of the blue. It is the fruit of this habituation of a wrong choice that he had already convinced himself was the right choice because before it got him the results that he wanted. Okay, so I know I'm taking a long time to get to the text here because I think this needs to be said for us to appreciate the importance of what this text is teaching. Because today, as we continue our series on Proverbs, we're going to be studying the sixth speech from the father to the son, and this text is especially interested in giving us concrete categories to help us get a feel of what it's like to actually live according to wisdom. Okay, so let's read it from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10 to 19. This is the word of God. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instructions. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go into it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, 
which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. So the point of this text is actually pretty simple, right? I'm sure most of you got it already. Choose the right path and avoid the evil one. Okay, hallelujah, amen. Let's go home. <laughs> but while I understand that some of us might feel a little frustrated that the text doesn't actually specify what to avoid or what exactly we should be doing to be on the way of wisdom, I think we must honor the fact that this is not the actual point of the text. Rather, what the text is trying to do is foster this receptive and open posture towards wisdom so that we can actually have categories to understand if and when we are being led by wisdom, that we may all the more be more intentionally seeking it and living by it. And this text does this simply by laying out what it feels like to be on the way of wisdom, and then the way of the wicked. Then I'll close with what the Bible says about how we can get on the right way. So that'll be our three points. How it feels to be on the way of wisdom, how it feels to be on the way of the wicked, and how we can be on the right way. May the words of our mouth, my mouth, and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. So point one, how it feels to be on the way of wisdom. Now before I go on to describe these two alternative ways, to help frame our discussion, let me just establish first what is said uh, in each of these paths, that they have at least three things in common, right? First, both of them have some description of the path that you're on, right? Telling us the symptoms that will tell us that we are indeed on this path, to use a medical term, it's like the diagnosis. Secondly, the text outlines what we can expect to happen if we continue upon this path. I think doctor calls this the prognosis. And finally, we also find what is the author's recommendation as to the appropriate response in light of the fact of the path that's being described, right? So to continue this medical theme, let's call this the prescription. So diagnosis, prognosis, prescription, we can find this about both the way of wisdom and the way of wickedness. And again, just to clarify and avoid any misunderstanding, when we talk about the way of wisdom, is not strictly talking about a set of behaviors, right? Not only about things that we do that fall under the category of wisdom, but it's really talking about the course of our life, meaning the direction our life is heading towards, what route we're currently on. So in verse 11, we see here that we can diagnose that we are truly on the wisdom trail when we are on the path of uprightness. Now, this word of uprightness is not a word that we, don't, we use in normal life in English anymore, at least I don't. But the Bible, in the Bible, the Hebrew word that's translated here as uprightness is yoser, right? And it's literally like straight. But in the Bible, this word is actually exclusively used as a moral word. That it is mostly associated with this idea of 
honesty, fairness, and general integrity. Meaning that walking in the way of wisdom is being led up a path of this transparency and consistency with regards to our ethical principles. Therefore, one way that we could do a self-diagnostic about this is by taking every action you take, every decision you make, every thought that you have, and considering how concerned are you if people actually find out about them. And if you find that you're quite concerned, it's a pretty good sign that we might be veering away from the path of wisdom. Now, I'm not saying that everybody needs to know absolutely everything about us. Privacy and discretion are not bad things. But it seems like the path of wisdom is leading us into a life where we can actually have a life of an open book, right? Like if there was an audit of our lives, if even when the things that we do when nobody's around or the thoughts that we keep to ourselves are checked, we're not stressing because we've got nothing to hide and everything will actually be found in order. Now, I don't know about you guys, but to me, that sounds vulnerable and terrifying. I'll be the first to admit, friends, that I'm not there yet. I am ashamed of a great many things in my life and there is so much in my heart and mind that is still unbecoming of someone who is standing here trying to explain the Word of God. But the good news is, I think this text isn't telling us that we need to already be perfect. Rather, wisdom is leading us up this path of uprightness, it says. So it's a journey. It's a process that we participate in by not simply locking up the skeletons in our closet, but by doing the uncomfortable work of taking them out and cleaning it out. Not to mainly be worried, but making sure that we aren't exposed of our flaws, but genuinely dealing with them, being able to seek whatever help and support and necessary for repentance to get us to a point where we can even celebrate the things that we were once ashamed of as a beautiful part of our story. As being a way that God had formed us and worked in us. Now, I'm going to talk about the dangers of putting off this process more in the next point. But for now, I want us to notice in verse 12, that the text teaches us that being on this path is a profoundly liberating experience. That's the prognosis of following the way of wisdom. It says that on this path, our steps will not be hampered, giving us the image that the ground we're walking on is even and not shaky, meaning that there is no need to be concerned while being on this path that there would be any sudden cause of danger or harm. And even when we run, 
which, use, which is usually, you know, putting us at a greater risk of falling and stumbling. It's saying that we will not stumble. You see, what this verse is saying is that wise living, in honest and wise living, we can move through life with confident comfort. That even when we work hard and give it our all, like when we run, we can feel safe. And in fact, later in verse 18, where we're given an emphatic summary about the path of the righteous, the metaphor of this light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter is used until it's fully day. And it's a dynamic image, isn't it? Telling us that on the way of wisdom, we can expect that we won't stay the same. We can expect growth. We can expect that we will be better. Let me tell you guys a story and hopefully illustrate this point better. So I have perhaps an unhealthy fascination with the mafia. Like I love gangster movies and shows. Okay, don't judge me. And in my research, I came across this guy called Michael Francis. You can look him up on Google, I mean on YouTube. And he was once one of the bosses of the New York Mafia in the 80s. And he was a big deal back then, right? Apparently making up to $8 million a week. So he had all the money and respect that he ever wanted through this shady life. But at the same time, the deeper he got into that life, the more moral compromises he had to make, the more he had to sacrifice his family life. He even ended up getting divorced once. And he had to be constantly watching his back and hiding, worried if the police or even rival gang should suddenly get him with bad intentions. And eventually, Michael Franzese did go to prison, but while he was there, he became a Christian. And afterwards, he made undoubtedly frightening choice to leave the mob life. And now, he spends his time being a motivational speaker, warning people about the dangers of the shady life, and even speaking in churches and Christian conferences. So do you notice the contrast between his former life and what he's doing now? Before, as he worked harder and progressed upon the path of darkness, he only encountered more dangers and difficulties, though he earned more. Or in the words of Jay-Z, more money, more problems. But in his life now, though he does not have nearly as much, he is able to fully invest himself in what he's doing, work as hard as he can to be the best while having complete confidence that what he's doing is productive and helpful and meaningful. Friends, this kind of peace of mind is absolutely invaluable. And I think that this text tells us that we really can't live life without it. That's what it means when in verse 13 it says that wisdom herself is actually our life. That she is your life. So how we should respond to this fact, the prescription is straightforward, though, again, difficult. We must not let go of her. The Hebrew word here is literally like, don't relax. And we must guard her 
and protect her. These are fighting words, telling us to be proactive and even aggressive, always being alert, ready to fight for her with all we got, which looks like for us making every arrangement, taking every initiative to make sure that our lives are always being led by God's wisdom. So what kind of changes do you need to make so that you can make sure that you are actually being led by God's wisdom? What do you need to take care of? What skeletons do you need to take out? What do you have to stop doing? And how can we, as the church, help you? Because it's going to be really hard, friends, to remain on this way of wisdom if we're not constantly asking ourselves this question. Because though it's simple, it is by no means easy. And it can be so tempting when we are struggling with the challenges of being on this path to make the short-sighted choice to go with the path of convenience instead of the path of obedience. A choice that might take us to a place that's almost impossible to come back from, which is point two, how it feels to be on the way of the wicked. Let's come back and notice with me uh, verse 14 and 15. Interestingly, the author actually starts with the prescription before anything else. He says emphatically, do not enter the path of wickedness let alone continuing down this path do not even get started don't get yourself in that situation and the necessary part of doing that is actually removing ourselves from the company of those who are going down the path of evil that word the evil that we find in our translations in the esv it can be just as well be translated as evildoers Right? Communicating that it's pretty much inconceivable to completely avoid participating in sin if we are surrounding ourselves with those who don't think that sin is sin. Basically, advising us all to curate all our influences and ask ourselves the question, are the circles that we associate ourselves with, the group of friends that we have the things that we watch and hear. Are they actually making it easier for us to sin or be righteous? Because over the course of our lives, inevitably, we will be faced with the choice of going down the way of wickedness. And we would have more clarity. Life would be much easier if we minimize the number of voices telling us to go the wrong direction. Because it's so easy to go there. It's a slippery slope. That's what verse 15 is saying. We need to avoid it. To not go down it or pass over it. To turn away from it. In Hebrew, it's literally like swerve. Indicating that there is a high level of alertness and discernment that's needed in avoiding the path of evil because at some point we will suddenly find ourselves in the verge of evil with some opportunity for shady business, some opportunity for toxic relationship, some desire for revenge or harm that will suddenly appear in our hearts and we need to be able to notice it and actively change course to avoid it. 
It's kind of like driving in Jakarta. A motorbike or angkot will cut you off, certainly, at some point, and put you on the verge of an accident. So we must go into the drive understanding that this happens and be ready to hit the brakes and swerve when necessary. Because if we're not prepared and we make it a habit of going down the way of wickedness, we will eventually become like the wicked and be so morally distorted that far from grieving our sin, we actually end up seeing sin as something that we cannot live without. And that's a diagnosis of the wicked. Verse 16 and 17. It says that those on this path, they can't sleep if they haven't done something wrong. It's like they're addicted to sin. It's become part of their habits or their nature that their peace of mind almost depends on doing what is sinful. It's this darkness of mind that leads us to believe that there's no way for us to be in a healthy and a satisfying relationship if you wait for marriage until any sexual activity. It's what makes us feel injustice if we haven't personally gone back at someone who might have wronged us. It's what drives us to feel constantly dissatisfied with ourselves if we're not as good or better than some other person. You see, our conscience gets bent out of shape. Like there's something that becomes twisted inside of us that makes what's wrong feel so right. And this is a, hab is a consequence of making a habit of entertaining the wicked path. But not only that, in verse 16, it also adds that it's not enough for us, for the morally distorted, to be reveling in their own crookedness, but they also will find it necessary to drag other people down their level. It says that they lose sleep when someone else does not stumble. You see, when we're on the path of wickedness, we cannot stand seeing someone else's blessing. We can't celebrate when someone else is having more, is doing better, or looking nicer than us. Because the good thing in their life only highlights the fact that these good things aren't happening in our lives. But when other people stumble, and prove themselves to be just as broken and sinful as we are, instead of grieving over it, we're somehow relieved. Deriving some sort of sick satisfaction from knowing that there is someone else who is more depraved and miserable as I am. You see, in the path of darkness, our desires and perspectives are distorted. And the heart of this distortion is this selfish drive to normalize the behaviors that I myself do, though I know deep down is wrong. Because somehow, if more people is doing something wrong, my own participation in sin does not feel as wrong. Wanting to justify myself because actually, I've fallen in love with what's wrong and are not willing to live without it. That's what verse 17 is trying to tell us. Using the metaphor of food, evil and violence has now become their bread and wine. 
food that was regularly consumed in Israel at that time, equivalent to Jakarta's rice and coffee. And so, the wicked are those who live off of sin to the point that it becomes a need such that life without it simply becomes unattractive and unthinkable. Perhaps it's some relationship that's going to be broken. Perhaps it's some people that we simply can't be around anymore. Some loss of profit or business opportunity or even a complete change in lifestyle, community, and career. The reality is, friends, that there will be a costly consequence to leaving the way of wickedness. And the deeper we've traveled down this path, the more frightening is the price that we have to pay to get out. That's why the advice was to save yourself from the trouble and not get involved in the perverse place. Do not enter. However, if you feel like you have wandered too deep down the path of wickedness, let me emphasize that it's not too late for you. And God is telling us that it's totally worth it to pay the cost, leave it all behind, and to trust Him. Because actually, friends, the life that we're signing up for, if we insist on going down this road, at least to me, sounds unlivable. And this is what verse 19 is about, the prognosis of the way of the wicked. You see, in contrast to the light of life that is growing and constantly getting brighter, that the way of wisdom is heading towards, the way of the wicked, on the other hand, leads us to being stuck in deep darkness, whereby we always seem to be stumbling in a life in which whatever we do and wherever we go, there always seems to be a cause for concern, constantly being worried of disaster striking, of losing everything, or of being exposed. And no matter how much we have and what we achieve, never being able to escape the shadow, the dissatisfaction and insecurity that's always following us. And although occasionally we can contrive some sort of composure and calm in the midst of this through our vices and wealth, it's never real and lasting peace. Because eventually, we have to come to terms and face the fact and face the anxiety about the darkened road that it's ahead and we have no assurances what will happen when we traverse through it terrifying, isn't it? So it's simple, right? Just try really hard to get on the way of wisdom. At least those of us who've been Christians for a while, we are pretty much familiar with God's instructions. We know what's right, so we just got to get our acts together, right? But I suspect most of us have at one point tried this uphill trek up the path of righteousness yet have found it, unfortunately, much harder than we can manage. And no matter how much effort we've put in, we keep on helplessly slipping towards the way of wickedness. 
a slippery slope. And we might even find ourselves struggling and stumbling as much as anyone else. And it's going to be so discouraging and exhausting. So how, how could we ever experience the life and freedom and confidence that following God supposedly offers us? And this is why the gospel is good news, friends. Because the Bible tells us that God understands our limitations. He knows our frame, that we are dust. He knows that we will never be able to make it all the way up the path of righteousness through our own wisdom and power. That's why He sent His Son to take us there. Very quickly, point three, how we can be on the right way. So, I find it interesting that on the Sermon of the Mount, after summarizing for us the wisdom of the Old Testament as do unto others as you would have done unto you, right? Pretty simple in Matthew 7. Jesus continues to use this metaphor of the way to illustrate the nature of the task of actually following wisdom. He says in verse 13 and 14, maybe it's up there, says that, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So the Lord knew that the way of life is in a park, walk in the park, and many will fail. But this is where Christianity is unique from every other religion out there that I know of. Because instead of just pointing us to the way of life, telling us the truth, and simply telling us or, or expecting us to try our best to f just follow the leader, as we have heard in our assurance of pardon earlier, Jesus is saying that he doesn't point to the way, but that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what it means, friends. You see, Jesus was the only one who ever perfectly followed God's way of wisdom. He alone never strayed from the path of righteousness, though like us, he faced every temptation to do so even following it all the way to the cross where he gave up his life, going down and experienced the deepest darkness that was coming for us all, death, so that he could give light to those who were once stuck in the shadow of death, that we can follow him out as he personally leads us on the way to life. In other words, because of our sin, we never, neither have the willingness nor the capability to even access the way to life. So in God's wisdom, the way came to us, making the way accessible to us. So though we can't go on the way, we can come to Jesus. And by trusting in what Jesus has done, instead of our own power, we can already right now 
access this confident comfort on being the way of wisdom, knowing that Jesus' righteousness will complete whatever righteousness I lack. And Jesus' wisdom will correct whatever foolishness I have. Having confidence that as we follow Him with all our weakness and all our limitations, because we are in Him, He will not leave us alone. He will not let us fall into the deep darkness and lose the life that He purchased for us on the cross, but He will assuredly allow us to lay hold of that which is truly life. So friends, if and only if the reality of what Jesus had done is internalized deeply in our hearts, only if we've been moved by the beauty of what Jesus has done and will continue to do for us to the point that we understand that following Him is worth everything that we got, only then can we genuinely begin to see that the things of this earth that keep us in the dark are foolish. That the deeds of darkness will finally show themselves for what they really are harmful, and ultimately worthless. Only this epiphany, friends, this realization is powerful enough to allow us to remain alert and vigilant in order to consistently avoid and dodge the way of darkness. But if any of you right now still feel like you're stuck in the darkness, still frustratingly unable to break free of this anxiety and hopelessness about the future, I invite you today to let go of the things that you know are keeping you in the darkness. Come to Jesus right now and ask Him to help you hate the life of darkness that you may come into the embrace of your Heavenly Father. And today, I promise you that as long as the Lord lives, if you truly give your life to Christ in due time, you will find that you are becoming your best self. That you, in time, will worry about the future less and less, and you will find yourself increasingly walking with life in this posture of comfortable confidence in whatever season of life that you're in. You believe that, Christian? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, creator of heaven and earth, who has adopted us and loved us and invited us into your kingdom. Lord, we know that you are the source of every good thing and that in you, we have far more than we can ask or think. But Lord, we confess that we foolishly look to the temporal, fleeting, vain things of this earth to give us what you have freely offered to us. Lord, expose to us the darkness that we have committed ourselves into. Allow us to hate the deeds of darkness that we once loved. Allow us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, 
to have this righteous conviction and never allow us to be comfortable with continuing in sin that we may run to you lay hold of you trust in you and feel the indescribable freedom of giving ourselves to you for it is in your alone it is only in your will that we are truly free we trust that in you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.